Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be with us as we look into your word, as we look at several passages. Help us to understand and hear and agree with it and rejoice uh, this first Sunday in Christmas, or first Sunday after Christmas. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 There is no question that today's readings on the first Sunday in Christmas herald the new beginning that comes when the Son of God comes in the flesh and comes in history. Not just a new beginning, but a new beginning for Israel, as we read in our passages, and for the whole world. These readings do so relying on multiple images that bring across the greatness of the event in the history of salvation and in world history. Because Jesus is the Son of God, it takes multiple images to picture Him. And our passages do that. Additionally, these passages give you great confidence and encouragement in the Christian faith and message. Now, there were four readings, and we sung one of them, uh, Psalm 148. And I want to begin with Psalm 148. We'll just work our way to the right through the Bible. In Psalm 48, we find that all creation, with Psalm 148, all creation from the heavens to the earth are to praise Yahweh. In the heavens, just summarizing, from the heights to the angels to the hosts of heaven, from the sun, moon, and stars, from the waters that are above the heavens, they are all to praise Yahweh, because He has made a decree that shall not pass away. The same is true of all the earth. You have the heavens and then the earth. From the sea monsters in the deep to the snow, the hail, the clouds, the mountains, the hills, from the fruit trees, even to the beast, even creeping things and kings, judges and princes, old to young, are all to praise Yahweh. From one end of the heavens to the earth, all are to praise Yahweh. And I think you should ask the question, why are they to praise Yahweh? Well, verses 13 and 14 tell us why. His name alone is exalted And he has lifted up a horn for his people. Let me read those. Let them praise the name of Yahweh. For his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints. For the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise Yahweh. The exalted one has lifted up a horn. A symbol of power and majesty a symbol of defense and offense in the scriptures. And it's used many places throughout the Bible. Let me just read one example to make this clear. 2 Samuel chapter 22. My God, my rock, and whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. End of quote. You know horns are used throughout the Bible. You can think of a false prophet that had the horns that he said that Yahweh would use to gore the enemies and that Babylon would not come into the city. That's what we're talking about, a symbol of power and authority and salvation. So in effect, Psalm 148 says, All creation is to praise Yahweh for his lifting up a stronghold, a shield, a savior, a horn for his people. When God saves his people... And the flip side of salvation is always the destruction of the wicked. 
with this horn, all creation is to take notice and praise Yahweh. Now, who is that horn? Well, I have to wait a minute because it doesn't tell us in the passage. The next passage the church fathers put together in the lectionary to go with these readings this time of year was in Isaiah chapters 61 and 62. And that passage continues the storyline, but again with different images. The anointed one of Isaiah rejoices and exalts greatly in the Lord. We have praising in Psalm 148, exalting here. Let me read reread some of those. Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. In verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. As a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the land brings forth its sprout. And as a garden cause was sown in it to sprout up. So the Lord Yahweh will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before the nations. So why does he rejoice? Simply because God has clothed the anointed one with the garments of salvation, with the robe of righteousness, so that righteousness and worship will sprout up before the nations. This will be seen in Israel. For Zion's sake, the anointed will not keep silent because Zion's righteousness goes forth like brightness. Her salvation to shine brightly before the nations. All the kings will see her glory. Chapter 62, continuing in the passage. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. But for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of Yahweh will give. So what's happening the praise and the exalting and the anointed of Him coming is not supposed to be limited just to Israel, but it's supposed to break out and go forth across the globe, across the land. And nations will see it, and they'll be drawn to it. Jerusalem will be beautiful in the hand of Yahweh, a royal diadem, a royal jewel in the hand of of her God. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of Yahweh. This is verse 3 of 62. And a royal diadem in the hand of your God. In other words, God is going to do wonderful things through the anointed one to make Jerusalem a beautiful jewel in the hand, in his hand, that his eyes delight in. But not only for his eyes, but for other eyes to behold. And as I mentioned specifically, the nations will see the righteousness and worship sprouting up before them, leading them and calling them to worship Yahweh as well. Jerusalem will be a beacon of hope. Kings will be led to her glory. Sounds like an appropriate passage for Christmas time, doesn't it? The anointed one will cause a realignment of the nations of the land surrounding Israel. But let me ask you this. Did you notice the garments that are mentioned in this passage? The things that were talked about, robes, priestly headdresses, jewels, crowns, and royal diadems filled with jewels. These, obviously, are all the adornments of the priests of God in the temple. 
The temple itself is being opened up to the world. Fellowshipping with God himself is being promised and proclaimed. The priest, where it's hidden worship before, now goes out. Now, who is this anointed one? I know you know the answer to that because you know your Bible and you've heard Isaiah 61, but I can't tell you yet because it's not in the passage. Now, the fulfillment of these passages is seen in Luke and Galatians, our further readings. For Luke, the Savior has come. The horn of Psalm 148 has been born, and he is identified as Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. And that's the exact language that John's father, Zacharias, uses in chapter 1, verse 69, quote, and, and he's praying here under the Spirit about the role of his son in being uh, the forerunner for the Messiah, for Christ. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies. So the church fathers connected that passage back to Psalm 148 and said, Zacharias, by the power of the Spirit, is seeing these connections. Now in chapter 2 of Luke, uh, in our reading, we find Simeon recognizing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this child Jesus is ushering in a new age. And not only for Israel, but for the whole world. That's been true in all our passages. While he had been faithfully awaiting the consolation of Israel, what he gets to hold in his arms is the salvation of all the peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He is holding the Abrahamic promise in the flesh, in his arms as a baby. And we'll sing a great song about that in a few minutes. While Jesus is the glory of Israel, he is presented as the salvation of all the peoples, just as Isaiah promised. Luke chapter 2, verse 30. For my eyes, this is Simeon, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. His light would shine forth to Gentiles, revealing to them the love, the mercy, the forgiveness of God, borrowing from the phrase of Isaiah 49, verse 6. This is where God is speaking uh, to uh, the servant. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Here you see that all the peoples are made in one new worshiping man. Jews and Gentiles have the same Savior. And that's what's revealed by Paul earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. Jews and Gentiles are made into one new man when Christ comes. The wall between them is broken down. Now, we not only find Simeon there in the temple, but we find a double witness too. Anna. This godly woman who stays in the temple night and day. All right? She's a prophetess. And she gives a double witness to what Simeon said, what God was doing in changing the world and bringing it under his anointed one. And that it would begin right there in Jerusalem. For she was proclaiming that Jesus 
was the redemption of Jerusalem. And we're going to see in a minute that Jerusalem did need redeeming. With thankfulness to God, she spoke to all who were waiting for that redemption. It was now here, she proclaimed, in the person of this baby. Now, again, as you look at that passage, you have to to ask yourself about the imagery within Luke 2 there. uh, Both of these events. And they take place in the temple. Here is God among us. Emmanuel, in his temple, on the mountain. And by the Spirit, the Son is recognized in the Father's house. At his presentation to the Lord in the temple, the Holy Spirit moves to identify this baby, this child, as the one holy to Lord, as the one anointed to bring consolation and redemption to Israel and to all the nations. The anointed one of Isaiah 61 is Jesus. Right? The horn of salvation of Psalm 148 is Jesus. And what is identified in the temple will spill out into all the world, just as surely as the water from the temple did in Ezekiel 47. Salvation flows from God's throne, from the temple laver, from the waters above, because Jesus is the living water. He's come down to dwell among us and to pour out his life and to give us life, to wash us and to cleanse us and to take care of our thirst. The faithfulness of Jesus in his suffering will split the temple veil, pouring out salvation to all the world as the temple and its gifts are brought out to men. Now that's that's a new change I hadn't even thought about before, at least in terms of the sermon. When he splits the veil, uh, the temples open up. Men and women can go in there and God makes himself open. Before this, it had been closed. Only the high priest went in there once a year. The normal people didn't get to go in the temple. They were unclean. They were unholy. They weren't appointed. But now Jesus coming opens that up and rivers of life flow. Both Simeon and Anna proclaim God is with all men. God's light is shining over all the world. Peace on earth. That's why the angels sing that. Of course, the greatness of Jesus coming in history is not lost on the apostle Paul. Uh, after all, Jesus did visit him on the road to Damascus with a with the Shekinah glory, and I don't think he would miss the point of that message uh, because it was great, falling down blind. It's not lost on Apostle Paul. In Galatians 4, he says, In the fullness of time, meaning when the world had run down to its dregs, and it was just about to implode, just as it did before Noah was appointed as Savior, just as Canaan had filled up its sins to destruction before Joshua entered the Holy Land, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So here you get a change. To redeem us that we might uh, no longer be Uh, under tutelage, but actually be sons. Things were so bad in the state of Israel that even those under the law, the law handed down by God, written by a finger on the mountaintop with his glory, handed by a guy who shone the glory of God when he carried it back down. God gave that law. How could you ask for a better law to live by? 
But things had become so bad, even under that law, that the Israelites had perverted that law and were using it to kill and keep the Gentiles away from salvation and from Israel and finding the Messiah. Things were so bad that Israel itself was imploding. Israel itself was under judgment, demonstrated by the habitation of demons. Where? Not over with the Gentiles, but in the synagogues. In the synagogues. Jesus says, you, your father is Satan. That's what he says to the Jews. Things are so bad until you get to that climatical, united voice of the people where they murder their very Savior, the Messiah. And what do they say? We have no king but Jesus. That's not what they say. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Let his blood be in our heads. So everything had fallen so apart that had Jesus not come, the world would have been snuffed out because they were the program for bringing light and salvation. Paul's point uh, is that Jesus was born under the law to redeem those under the law and elevate them to spiritual sons who keep the law by the power of the Spirit. They weren't able to keep the law without that power of the Spirit. Jesus was born under the law in order to make us living heirs of God himself as sons. No longer slaves, no longer treated as slaves, uh, no longer as children under the tutelage, but now you are a mature adult filled with the Spirit of God. Verse 6, And because you are sons, this isn't will be sons, hope to be sons, Maybe become a son. Work your way to becoming a son. You are sons. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Those are two names for same thing, Father. Double witness. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Before faith came in history, before faith, the true man of faith, and that faith there is Christ, men were shut up under the law. They were to be trained. All right, they were to grow up. And that captivity, Paul says, leads us, should have led them to rely on Christ by faith, that we might be justified by faith in the true man of faith, who believed his Father, that would keep his promises. And believing in Jesus, you become sons of God, just as Jesus is himself. You are united to the Son of God. In baptism, we and you Put on Christ himself. Chapter 3, verse 25. But now that faith has come, talking about Jesus, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. What Paul is saying is that in union in Christ, we are removed from the strictures of the law as children and tutelage and now made adults in Christ who live by the Spirit of Jesus. We are now sons that have inherited the Father's inheritance, having come of age. And in doing so, the Father gives His Spirit that we might call to Him in maturity, doing not only His will as Jesus did in His life, but continuing on in that faithfully. Now, Paul uses the same phrase in the fullness of time in Ephesians 1.10. And that gives us some further clarification of what he means here in Galatians 4. Let me read to Ephesians, 9, verses, uh, Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 11. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, 
which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So in Jesus Christ, heaven and earth are united in this Son of God, born of a woman, born under the law. He's the ladder that the angels go up and down to connect heaven and earth. Through him, mankind has reconciliation with heaven above based on his redeeming death and resurrection. Through him, God's will in heaven is done on earth. Through him, the Holy of Holies is opened up and its treasures are poured out upon you, God's people. Through him, the kingdom comes. This is what Paul is saying. Through him, we obtain inheritance, which is all that the Father has. Since you are the Father's sons. What the Father has, you own, you have. So rather than being separated from God, excluded from God, as in the old covenant because of sin and disobedience, as depicted in Ephesians 2 uh, by Paul, the whole world now is united, Jew and Gentile as one new man, uh, to the Father, through the Son, and by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian effort. And so we find Paul's proclaiming, chapter 3, The promise to Abraham is fulfilled. The gospel goes out to all the nations in Christ. Now that's quite a change in history that these four passages talk about. That's quite a message of hope for mankind. That's quite a different reality for mankind uh, from the old covenant to the covenant. To the world without Christ, the world with Christ. But what do you do with this change? What do we do with these facts, with these truths? How, the question to ask is, how does this affect you today as you sit in here listening to me? What are the implications of Christ's coming for your faithful living this week as a husband, father, as a wife, as a mother, as an employee, as an employer, as a neighbor, as a son, as a daughter? What are those implications? What are some observations we can make? Well, let me give a couple. And of course, they're infinite. <laughs> But I'm going to pick a couple. <laughs> I'm going to get the low-hanging fruit. First, uh, from these passages, don't lose sight of the fact that we believe in a world conquering, a world dominionizing God. All right, The world is his. He commanded the first Adam to carry out dominion, and he brought the second Adam to finish the job. Jesus came to make the earth a reflection of heaven. Just as surely as your faces are to reflect the Lord Jesus after you see him on the liturgical morning this morning, on the liturgical mountain this morning, right now. As you walk out of here this morning, there's a glow on your face that wasn't there when you came in. And there's a change because you can't hear the word of God and not be changed. You're different. And you take that out into the world to carry out dominion uh, according to God's word. God has raised up a horn of salvation and he's been entrusted to make the kingdoms of the world his own kingdom. That's called the Great Commission. And I'll recite it in a few moments. You are part of that endeavor. In fact, you are the mechanism of that endeavor. As you worship the Lord Jesus Sunday and you carry out that glory on your face to the world 
around you this following week. Every week, each and every week. You are the demonstration that Jesus has come in history and in time. And that the world has been remade in him. And is being remade in the Son of God. And in the sons of God. There is a future because Jesus came in the fullness of time. So don't forget, first of all, that God intends to make the world his sons and that he will rule uh, fully and completely. And that that you are the the means of that transformation. Secondly, don't lose sight of the fact that the world is united only in Jesus Christ as the light for the redemption of the world. The operative word here is only. Men are only united by the blood of Jesus as they are washed in him, as they are brought into the regeneration that began when he ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the throne ruling the world and they are regenerated in that regeneration being inserted in that by baptism. Uh, Men are only united by the blood of Jesus being restored to worshiping the true creator of the world. Left to themselves, men destroy the world and one another. If you don't believe that, let me encourage you to read Fox News on your phone every morning and see how great the world is, how much sin is in the world. I just read yesterday morning that 140 Nigerian Christians were killed for sport on Christmas Day by the Muslim extremist. The world's not a kind place. Left in themselves, men destroy the world, but in Christ they beautify the world and one another as they seek to glorify their Creator and Savior and gratefulness and thankfulness. There's a movie called Tender Mercies, and in the movie the guy gets saved, and he's shown in a garden, creating a garden. And he used to be a drunk, a country music drunk, musician, country music musician drunk, But now he's saved in Christ and he's out gardening and the wind is blowing, the Holy Spirit is moving and he's making the world new again. That's what Christians do. And that's why Christmas is such a great holiday. It's about peace in the world, peace between men and God, between men and men, peace between neighbors. So secondly, don't lose sight that salvation is only in Christ. We saw that in our text, the horn, the anointed one. This baby, all right, uh, Jesus who came. Third, don't lose sight of the fact that Christ's birth, death, and resurrection brought about the end of human sacrifice and the culture of death. No more Molechian, Mayan, Incan, Celtic civilizations where human sacrifice played such a central and gory part. Whenever the, wherever the church goes, the answer is human sacrifice is over because the human, Jesus, has been sacrificed for mankind. Life was the way forward, not death, because Jesus, quote, was and is the firstborn from the dead. He conquered it. Even animal sacrifice, which God instituted to point forward to his son's death for mankind, has largely ended. Of course, you still have work to do since the Great Commission is not finished. Not all the nations have been thoroughly discipled. Christ is reigning in the midst of his enemies, and they are still rebellious. They still love death. We still have work to do, 
because we still have human sacrifice in various forms. The new God that must be satisfied with human sacrifice is self. S-E-L-F. Self. Because we still have human sacrifice in the form of abortion. Right? Myself. I have to have my career. It's for my mental health. I put my baby to death. Or euthanasia. I don't want people to see me die in pain. I don't want to see people, me, losing my faculties. So I will murder myself. Or maybe sex trafficking, where women are killed, or men are killed in the, in the sex trafficking itself. It's a human sacrifice for others, for that self of them abusing them. We still have work to do. So, uh, but, but rejoice that Jesus came and ended that, and we have a memory and vestiges of that. I mean, you can go to Mexico and see where they used to kill thousands and thousands, and their blood would run. But the Christians came and proclaimed Jesus as the true human sacrifice. Additionally, as sons of God obtaining the inheritance of the Father uh, of the creation of Jesus, you alone are the true environmentalist, the true globalist, the true peacemakers. For you alone, being united to the Son, fully understand and comprehend God's plan for the world. I guess this would be Christian wokeism, huh? You're the true globalist. You alone truly understand that the world is not the product of chance on time and matter. That's foolishness. That's ridiculousness. You alone understand that the world is not superstitious and random, but ordered personally and beautifully by a creator who loves us and seeks the world's best. That gives you great confidence in your obedience to all of Christ's law. You are his hand in the transformation of the world. And that goes hand in hand with the Great Commission, doesn't it? Because you understand the world's purpose. Much of the world lives around you in a fractious, warmongering existence. But you have the answer for that in the worship of Jesus Christ and obeying his commands and his precepts as his people and as his church. So let your light shine. Take hold of the creation. Whatever you do every day, mother or dad, a business, take hold of the creation. Give thanks. Restructure it. Evaluate it. Hand it out to others and enjoy it. That's the right of transformation. And that's what you're involved in as a Christian. We're the true lovers of the world. Yes, love your mother. I saw that on a bumper sticker today. And that, that, you know, and then they meant planet Earth, of course. But go home and love your mother and your dad, and thank God for the Earth. So rejoice today and in this season. As the horn of Jesus Christ is lifted high, the only Savior of the world in all the world. As the light of the Christian gospel shines forth to all the nations, bringing glory and joy to them. As you, the temple of God, filled with the light of Christ and, by the, and in the power of the Spirit, as you uh, bring out the gifts of the temple to those around you, uh, continue to rejoice. And as you live as sons of God, as mature adults, filled with the Spirit of Christ, working faithfully and obediently for the fulfillment of the Great Commission, rejoice as you establish the city of God among the cities of men. 
And as you think about all these things, may all these things overwhelm you, giving you great hope and joy and confidence and gladness of heart. God has promised great things. God has delivered those great things. Jesus is Lord. And I think sometimes as Christians at Christmas, we lose all this because we see all the crummy commercializations, all the blow-ups in the yards, you know, the stupid stuff out there, and you get dulled of mind. But you have to read the Scripture and say, no, Christmas is great because Jesus is Lord. This little babe will remind you that. So may Jesus continue to change the world till God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And may he do so through your lives as his church, worshiping and rejoicing till all is fulfilled. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great and encouraging word. Uh, May we uh, hear it. May we uh, appreciate it. May we be thankful. May we apply it in our lives, our hearts, our minds, our speech as we work with others. Help us to be giving. Help us to be transformative to people. Help us to live uh, by the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, kindness. Help us to do all those things, Father, that we might be that light shining in the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.